And he said, Dad, what are the chances that you're going to die? And I, I still remember, um, and I knew the odds, right? And I know the, the data still that I'd remembered from uh, med school and others. But I said, you know, it's different when you're a patient. It doesn't matter what the odds are, right? There's only two outcomes. You win or you lose. You live or you die. It's not a percentage. And that I would do everything we could to ensure that I won, that we were going to beat this, that we had the best care that we could ever want, and that access to this trial and this new drug was what we thought was really going to help us get through it. He never asked me again. He never uh, questioned it. School of Medicine and host, producer, and engineer of the podcast Mountain Lion. This introduction is the same one I used for all of the Surviving Crisis series, so if you've already heard the intro, feel free to fast forward about two minutes and 30 seconds further downstream and skip it. I will not be offended, and in fact, I will never ever know you skipped it unless you find me and tell me that you did that. Today I have an interview for you to listen to in the Surviving Crisis series. The idea for this series actually came from a suggestion that my good friend Dr. Mark Henderson posed a couple years back for a meeting plenary session for the Academic Alliance for Internal Medicine. His idea was a simple one and it was to have a panel of four to five members who would discuss loss, coping with loss, and survival after loss. Unfortunately, there wasn't really any uptake on the idea, so we put it away. But it kept on nagging at me, all these important and amazing stories that might be of great help to other members in the organization. Fast forward about a year, and I posed the idea to the clerkship directors of Internal Medicine Council, of which I'm a member, and counselors were very enthusiastic in their support of the idea. But in this case, the conversations would be separate and in the form of podcasts. So I want to take this opportunity to thank Mark Henderson for the idea, and the CDIM Council for their unabashed, enthusiastic support of the idea for these conversations. You're going to hear a bunch of stories on these podcasts, some so sad that you will, as I did, feel like your heart is being pulled from your chest, but all are inspiring in their own ways. You'll hear about a 13-year-old who literally was a key player in saving his physician father's life and in another about loss so overwhelming that even as you hear about that loss, you will struggle to imagine how anyone could have survived it. You'll hear about racism. You'll hear about stumbling and falling and getting back up and pushing on. You'll hear a lot about family and how important family is in just about every kind of hard time that there is. And yes, you'll hear about love, because even though this is just another podcast, air quotes over just another podcast, and it's mostly been about medical education, none of the podcasts you'll listen to don't have love come into play at one or multiple junctures. So if you're not a lover of hearing about love, stop this podcast now and go listen to the Curious Clinicians podcast, one of my current favorites, or the TED Radio Hour. A final note. I tried to keep these podcasts to what I think is the ideal length for a podcast, about 30 minutes, but as you'll see, or hear anyway, some drifted up to as much as an hour. It was hard to edit down any of these stories after I'd sat, transfixed, listening to them. 
Hard to take much out of these interviews, but easy to take away a lot from them. Enjoy, and please have a good, safe, healthy day. David, I was hoping that you could introduce yourself, tell us where you grew up, uh, went to college and medical school, where you did your postgraduate training, and then uh, where you're working now and what your position is. Thank you for the chance to, uh, to get to share a little bit of my, my story. Uh, I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, uh, and was the first physician to come out of the, the Zoss family, uh, really, actually, the only one who's left the, the greater Cleveland area. My dad used to joke that I was the family disappointment uh, when I wanted to leave Ohio for college. Went uh, to Yale for my undergrad for uh, not only the chance to uh, attend uh, the university, but also to get the chance to play football uh, with Carm Koza, one of the uh, legends of college football during his last few years of coaching, subsequently med school at Northwestern, uh, where I met my wife, Amy, and then couples matched for residency at Hopkins Fellowship in Pulmonary and Critical Care uh, at Duke. Uh, fortunate enough to have almost two decades of uh, great mentors uh, and colleagues uh, at Duke in a series of different roles, um, mm. but decided to make a transition in June of 2020, right in the middle of the pandemic, uh, to take on a challenge to lead the Medical University of South Carolina in Charleston. Wow. So is it, that's a, probably a bit of a commute then from where you are now? It is, so we have a, a house in Raleigh, and we have an apartment in Charleston, and we alternate weekends in different cities. Uh, and we have two teenage boys that go to boarding school in Concord, Mass. So uh, it's date weekends in three different cities on the East Coast, <laughs> but all great places with good restaurants, and it'll be especially nice when we get beyond COVID and the uh -huh. pandemic. Wow, that's impressive. And since this is uh, fairly relevant to uh, uh, our conversation today, um, tell me a little about, about your kids, how old they are, and, um, and then also about your spouse and what she does for work. So uh, Amy and I met in med school at Northwestern. I think uh, I remember actually meeting at the roof of what was called Lakeshore, Lakeshore Center, the, uh, <laughs> the dorm for first-year medical students at uh, Northwestern. Uh, we ended up both doing internal medicine uh, and couples matched uh, and were fortunate enough to go to Hopkins and work with David Hellman uh, and some amazing clinicians and to do our residency together. And I think to this day to be the only uh, husband and wife uh, ACS or chief residents that did their training together uh, wow. at Hopkins, and then subsequently couples matched for our fellowship where uh, Amy did infectious disease and, and I did pulmonary and critical care and really came to the Duke because of uh, my interest in lung transplant and ironically her interest in immunocompromised uh, hosts and infectious disease and a lot of uh, some great uh, mentors and, and scientists at Duke for both of us. Hmm. Wow. We have two boys uh, that are now 15 and 17. Um, although we both went to, to public school, they chose to go up to the Northeast. Both are uh, diehard soccer players uh, who aspire to play in college uh, and seize the opportunity to go to a boarding school called Middlesex in Concord, Mass. Uh, so one's a freshman and a junior, uh, and they get to play soccer and live in the same dorm up uh, just outside of Boston. Wow. Uh, you guys must miss them when they're not around, <laughs> although they're teenagers, so maybe you don't. <laughs> you know, I think what we've realized is that uh, we end up talking to them, I think, and connecting them with them almost as much when they're gone as when they're <laughs> here. It may be a little bit different, but uh, FaceTime uh, and Zoom and others even prior to COVID, uh, and we're also fortunate that uh, we can get up and back pretty easy with a short flight to watch a Saturday afternoon soccer game and mm -hmm. uh, take them to dinner and uh, still be back. So it uh, it has been easier than I would have thought, uh, although we clearly miss them. It's, uh, you still feel like you're their parents, which is great. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so other than following the Browns and traveling to Concord, um, what kind of things do you like to do outside of medicine? 
You know, uh, like obviously, I think similar to most uh, people that are in our stage of life, right? So much of your life revolves around your kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, we always joke that uh, even though they're in Boston, right? So much of what we do is looking forward to traveling with them, to watching them in, in their activities, and uh, as I said, both playing soccer and lacrosse. Um, as a family, um, I would say we're sort of exceptionally active and love to uh, get outdoors uh, as well as travel the world. And uh, prior to the, the pandemic, really had some amazing opportunities and memories to uh, as recently as last summer to travel to Australia and New Zealand uh, or travel through the Middle East and, and into Europe and to really sort of appreciate those moments that uh, your kids really want to, to spend with you as well as to get to grow to, together and see different cultures and, and different areas of the world. Um, I think Damien, I would also say we both are a large fan of good wineries uh, and a chance to uh, to make it to different areas of the country to uh, taste some of our favorite wineries would have to be high on the list. Mm-hmm. So can you tell us uh, or tell me about the events of a few years ago? Um, and I wasn't quite sure what year everything started, but um, I know it started with you thinking that you were out of shape or maybe had the flu. So it, uh, you know, it's actually crystal clear in your, in your mind. It was uh, Martin Luther King Day uh, in January of 2017. Uh, and Amy knows I have a bad habit on long weekends of uh, picking up with the kids and flying out west to go skiing uh, and enjoying a chance to, to go down some double black diamonds uh, with the teenagers. So we were skiing Park City, uh, MLK weekend. Um, and I really felt like I had the flu. I remembered struggling to breathe while walking up the hill at the end of the day, uh, trying to keep up with the kids and feeling uh, subjective chills that night. And I remember calling home and I said, I, I'm really convinced I have the flu. And I went to bed at 8.30 or nine o'clock um, and really thought it was just a viral infection. But over the next several weeks, it never went away. Uh, some days were worse than others, but the, the shortness of breath on exertion got worse the feeling that I had a fever, although I never could record a fever, uh, was there. I started to develop a skin rash, and I remember asking, did we change any detergents? Uh, and did I have a contact dermatitis? And then I noticed that my gums were bleeding and swollen and knew something was, was wrong. And there was a night right before Valentine's Day, so it had been almost four weeks, when I was carrying a laundry basket just up one flight of stairs and my younger son Jonah looked at me and he said, Dad, why are you breathing so hard? And I realized that I had been trying over the last month to work out more, to run more, and it just kept getting harder and harder. The next morning while walking into the hospital and I didn't sleep much because in the back of my mind, I knew with my gums bothering me and a skin rash and that I felt like I was anemic, that I had leukemia. I stopped a friend of mine who was a cardiologist uh, and I said to to Mark, will you draw a CBC for me? Like many of us that are in medicine, I've never seen a primary care doc. Uh, I figured I was Mm. married to a physician. None of the health maintenance otherwise was was really needed. Mm. Um, Ironically, he didn't want to do the, the CBC. He wanted me to do a stress test. Uh, oh, no. I, I did the stress test for him. I, I walked right into his office. I canceled a few meetings, uh, and my heart rate at 165 minutes into the, the Bruce protocol. Uh, he looked at it and he t- it said, your heart looks great. Uh, and I said, all right, let's, let's draw the, the CBC. I, I then actually decided to wait a few days. Um, I didn't check the results uh, until they got released through my chart. And I remember sitting uh, at the Duke Cancer Institute actually speaking to a bunch of our faculty uh, and I got the text that you have new results uh, available um, and looking at my phone realizing that I was right, uh, that I had diagnosed myself with 
leukemia, um, and then I was profoundly anemic, uh, thrombocytopenic, with a, a white count that was almost 40,000 uh, that night. So it, um, it it's really hard to use your clinical skills when you're diagnosing yourself uh, in, in many ways. Um, but it is one of those moments that you play in your mind. You could almost see the images uh, that night of what that screenshot looked like, and then calling my wife and uh, everything that followed. So, um, but uh, it is a day that you'll never forget. Hmm. And then what happened in subsequent days and weeks? So, you know, that night, um, I texted Amy um, and said, I need my, I think my text was, I need a bone marrow biopsy. Um, and, and actually was fortunate enough to to make a phone call that night to talk to a good friend who'd been a, an oncologist and a mentor of ours at Hopkins uh, when we were residents, who, who Lou Deal, who was down at Duke and um, saw him the next day, made sure I got, again, like many of us, I was stubborn. I went to work the next day, uh, didn't tell anyone. Uh, had a full calendar uh, and went to see him at five o'clock. And I'll never remember Lou walking into the room. Um, the door wasn't even closed. Uh, and he, to this day, says it was one of the worst days of his life to walk in to tell me that I had AML, hmm. uh, that I had acute myeloid leukemia. Um, although we knew it was leukemia, hearing him say that uh, and thinking about your own mortality uh, in someone that had been perfectly healthy uh, and had never had really uh, had to deal with any medical problems in my life um, was something that really turned everything upside down. Um, it was interesting. I, I, I reflect back and I, I think when you under stress, you move into different roles. Uh, and we see that at work, right, all the time. When in stressful situations, people move into roles. And, and in some ways, being married to another physician, and Amy, we, we sort of moved into different roles. The only thing I was worried about at the time was her and the kids. Uh, I, I wasn't worried about myself. I wasn't worried about what was going to be the, the treatment. Um, and I remember looking at her as he was after he'd finished explaining, uh, and I said, "You need to be the physician and figure out what we need to do, and I'm going to focus on taking care of myself and taking care of the kids." And in all honesty, I didn't read about it, despite being a physician scientist. I didn't look up different treatments. I didn't read about the different genetic mutations that I had. I focused on how do you talk to an 11 year old and a 13 year old hmm. about cancer? How do you take care of yourself? And I became almost obsessed with how I could stay in physically good shape despite uh, the challenges that I knew were ahead. Um, and how could I help try to keep things normal for, for Amy and, and the kids? And I've had so many people look back and say, you're a physician and a physician scientist. Um, but at that moment and for the next six months, I, I really wasn't. I didn't want to be a physician scientist. I had complete trust in Amy and the the team that was taking care of me and never questioned it. I understand you. So you got admitted at Duke shortly after that, but ended up at Johns Hopkins, I think, right? It did. So uh, they, they wanted to admit me that night and it was Valentine's day, but we all know that nothing never really happens in that first night. And I needed to, to go home and I needed to, to hug the kids and I needed to get a chance to, to think so we agreed that I would, we would come in on Wednesday morning uh, and get, get it admitted at Duke. Um, we didn't tell our kids that night. Um, our older son had to go to Washington DC the next day for a school trip. And I looked at Amy as we were driving home and I said, I want him to have three days as a normal teenager in Washington DC without knowing that his dad has cancer. Um, and so we agreed we would keep it from him just for that 
few days to let him and his friends go on the trip that they were so much planning on. We got admitted to Duke um, and we realized that we had a, a lot of things stacked against us. A lot of the AML risk factors for poor outcomes, unfortunately, I had with leukemia cutis and complex cytogenetics uh, that really uh, suggested a, a poor prognosis. Um, we didn't have any trials available at that time at Duke for naive uh, disease. It was They were all for refractory and relapse disease. Um, and we were really fortunate. And I think we, I guess part of me actually feels guilty over the years, right? We had so many things go right for us. Hmm. We had knowledge and access to not only amazing clinicians at Duke, but right, but a national network of peers that was allow us to identify research trials around the country. We had an employer that was supportive of both of us. We had family that stepped up to help us in time of need. Um, and when we look as a physician, I look at so many of our patients, right, that don't have all those things that, that we did. But um, Amy actually was able to call uh, our residency director, uh, who was our mentor uh, when we were at Hopkins, Charlie Weiner, uh, and in tears said, uh, Dave has leukemia and he really wants to find out where we can get a research trial uh, to see what new treatments are out there. And we always talk in, in healthcare, right, about uh, how Swiss cheese lines up when, when harm happens and we're all mm -hmm. focusing on high reliability, but I joke that for some reason the Swiss cheese holes lined up here for us and our benefit. Uh, Charlie was supposed to be on a flight overseas, but missed his flight that day, so he answered Amy's phone call. Hmm. He'd heard grand rounds about new treatments for AML with BRIC3 inhibitors that had not been published yet but were really exciting. And one of the world's experts in FLIP3 biology and new treatments uh, is my oncologist. I also happened to be our chief resident in 1998 by the name of Mark Levis. Hmm. Mark called my cell phone within the next 15 minutes. We talked, I don't think I understood a lot of what he said of the of the different questions around the leukemia, but he was pretty convinced that I was gonna have a mutation and that he would have a, a phase one clinical trial, but he was convinced, although it was still in phase one, that this was gonna be a breakthrough drug and that I should get up to Hopkins uh, to try to enroll in a phase one trial. So we actually checked out late that evening said goodbye to our, our younger son at school uh, and drove up to Baltimore that night uh, to be admitted for a phase one trial. And, and what, what was really, really fortunate that everything he said happened to come true in terms of not only that drug's safety, but subsequent efficacy that was shown uh, and was able to be one of the, near the end of the enrollment of the phase one trial um, for the second generation for three inhibitors. And meanwhile, while you're heading down to or up to Baltimore, um, your oldest son is still in Washington. Was that what was going on at that point? He is. So the younger one uh, came into Duke Hospital to see me. Um, he was my exercise partner. Uh, we were walking laps, trying to walk steps. Um, and he knew I had leukemia that next day, but the older one we kept it from. Uh, it wasn't until when that trip ended that a good family friend of ours actually drove to DC and picked him up rather than him driving back to, to Durham and drove him up to Baltimore uh, without him knowing why uh, and drove him to Johns Hopkins Hospital where Amy met him in the lobby um, and we had the chance to actually tell him there um, my parents 
moved in with us within 24 hours of that first phone call uh, and spent most of the next six months at our house uh, and we're fortunate that they were able to step up and, and really help take care of uh, the kids um, during that time period. I'll never forget um, when Jake came to the hospital and he didn't know why, I think he fell sound asleep in the car from Washington up to Baltimore and he could see Amy crying in the lobby. He knew something was wrong because she couldn't speak and was in tears and brought him into the cancer center at Hopkins. And I still have a picture of um, that Amy took with him sitting on the edge of the bed. Uh, and I'm trying to explain to him what had happened in the last 72 hours and that I'd been diagnosed with leukemia and I remember the question that he asked, he looked at me and he said, Dad, what are the chances that you're going to die? And I, I still remember, um, and I knew the odds, right? And I know the, the data still that I'd remembered from uh, med school and others. But I said, you know, it's different when you're a patient. It doesn't matter what the odds are, right? There's only two outcomes, you win or you lose, you live or you die. It's not a percentage and that I would do everything we could to ensure that I won, that we were going to beat this, that we had the best care that we could ever want and that access to this trial and this new drug was what we thought was really gonna help us get through it. He never asked me again. Huh. He never uh, questioned it. And I think a lot about um, how patients approach research uh, and how I was wrong as a physician and as a scientist with own research. And I'm happy to talk about that later if you want. I won't keep going. I'm giving you too long of answers. But... No, 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 they're great. Um, and how long were you in the hospital up in Baltimore at, at that point? So, um, I spent, I spent most of six months in, in Baltimore, um, with two long inpatient stays. So the night I arrived, I showed up at Hopkins, um, a little after midnight. And I remember as Amy and I pulled up, you could see the lit dome, which we had climbed as interns uh, on our first day of internship. And I looked at Amy and I said, when we beat this, I'm going to climb that dome again, hmm. uh, which we did in, in 1998. Uh, but now, uh, almost 20 years later, we would do that. Mark Levis, uh, my oncologist, came in at almost 1 a.m. to see us. And at that night, he described I would spend 30 days in the hospital with the induction and the initial chemotherapy. He identified quickly that we had a 13-year-old son that would be a donor uh, for hopefully a haplotransplant that night. And he talked about why he thought a non-traditional but more low-dose chemotherapy FLIP3 inhibitor combined with going quickly to bone marrow transplant would be the best outcome. And I remember as he left around 2 a.m., I looked over at Amy and I said, no matter what, whether we beat this or not, we've done everything we can. We're in the right place. And I did was not going to regret anything we did. There was a certain sense of sort of peace with the, the decision of where we were at. And, and again, a credit to the, the oncologist, Dr. Deal at Duke and Dr. Levis uh, at Hopkins, that we had just absolute trust uh, in all of them throughout the, the journey. Um, I think I spent around 71 days total inpatient uh, at Hopkins during those. I had, I had a month of induction and then a second inpatient month for consolidation and several hospital acquired infections and complications like many of our patients uh, mm -hmm. have over the years that made it a little bit longer. 
Um, and then in May of 2017, um, I underwent an outpatient uh, haplo transplant uh, with our 13-year-old son, Jake, as the, the bone marrow donor. That is amazing. Um, so, does he bring that up much? You know, um, I think others bring it up a lot. Mm -hmm. And he was amazing. So, um, from the second, I mean, the first time he came to see me, he was already being asked, was he ready to be the donor? Within hours of just finding out that I had leukemia, he was going to get blood work and labs for his own HOA typing. Um, and I'll reflect back on the idea that, you know, all of us had roles. Uh, and right, it was a chance for him to make a difference. And I think it was a way for him throughout the journey, rather than worrying and the uncertainty, right? He could focus on, I'm going to save my dad's life. I'm going to give him my bone marrow. Um, and I think there was a lot of pride in the sense of rather than helplessness. And I think so many of us as caregivers feel helpless. Um, and I really think the psychology of being able to make that impact by doing that really helped him. He really never seemed afraid. I'll never forget when they came to consent him and they, he's like, dad, when they come in, is this going to be like those horrible commercials on TV where they list all the long, long side effects of medications that I can't pronounce? And I said, yeah, kind of. They're going to read you a list of long kind of things that could happen. Um, and so they started to read it. And he goes, you just keep going. It's my dad. Of course I'm going to do it. Um, and he was so committed to that. I mean, I remember, and again, still have the, the photos of him waking up, coming out of the operating room with 10 bone marrows in each of his hips with liters of fluid that he got uh, within the OR and how swollen uh, he was and the pain over the next several days. And unfortunately, he had soccer tryouts on Monday and did a bone marrow donation on Thursday. Um, but he made soccer tryouts, wow. uh, some Advil and Tylenol, and he was ready to be back on the, on the field the best he could. And I really think that during the the process, it really helped him. I think after the process, so many people recognized him as a, a hero, but him and I both had one fear. Um, and we had the same fear, but we didn't say it to each other, which was what would happen if something went wrong? How would he feel? if it didn't work. And that was the thing that was hardest for me, realizing right he was being so selfless and so strong. But how would he handle it if it didn't go well? And he, we later learned, right, had those same worries. Uh, waiting to see if I would engraft and all that time, even after I was home with graft versus host disease, of the, the fear and the guilt of, all right, what's my role if it doesn't go well? Um, obviously, we're fortunate, and, and I'm almost four years out now and couldn't be doing better, but I, I think that what we did learn uh, and we wouldn't do it any differently was, well, it helped him a lot during the process. It also was really hard uh, on all of us afterwards because of the worry of if it didn't work out the way we wanted it to. Yeah, I guess that was one of my questions for you is, you know, 
once they'd seen that, I think, you know, kids that age see us as being invincible as their parents. And once he'd seen that you potentially weren't invincible, do they worry about you a lot? And I guess everybody in the family. I think they all worry more than me. Um, <laughs> so I think Amy worries the most. Um, and I think she knows the most. I think she's, as a transplant infectious disease mm-hmm. physician, right, she's cared for the, the bone marrow transplant patients that have had complications and, and struggled. And I think that amount of knowledge has made it even harder on her because she worries about it. I think Jake was always worried that if it didn't go well, was it his fault? Hmm. Uh, Because it was his bone marrow. And that's a big burden to carry. Um, And he's gotten beyond that. And I don't think today he worries about me, but I think that was hard. Our younger son, Jonah, was 11 at the time and is now... 15. Um, it's interesting. I didn't think he understood what was going on because he didn't seem to worry. But he did. Uh, he's written it in his poems uh, and in stories that he understood all of it. He had a unwavering faith uh, that I was going to get through it that was so strong, what I interpreted as him not understanding was truly just a sense of confidence that dad's strong enough, he's going to beat this, uh, and I'm not worried about it. Um, and I remember so many nights putting him to bed where uh, I would be in tears, much more than him, uh, and the, the emotions but it wasn't a lack of understanding. It was truly just a such a strong belief that dad's going to get through this and dad's going to beat this. Hmm. Incredible. So what were some of the strategies, if you reflect back on, the, on, on that time, that helped you get through all of this? So I think there's... A, three or four key points, one of which uh, I mentioned earlier was the trust in the team that's caring for you. Um, and when I speak to med students and others about my, my journey, and I say, you know, we teach students so much around, you know, how we have shared decision-making with patients and how we, um, we want them to be really engaged. And I don't think we talk enough because I think what really, what we needed was trust. We needed to have trust in the the team. Now that whatever was it gonna take to get there, but we were really fortunate that in the, our, our physicians at Duke and Hopkins, we weren't second guessing or questioning. We were confident even when we had complications and challenges. Um, the second um, piece that has always been important to, to me, and I'm a lung transplant physician and still practice, uh, is I do believe that people that are physically and emotionally don't allow themselves to act like they're sick have the best outcomes. And I used to... Uh, well, my patients, I used to really push people around the importance of not laying in bed and getting up and walking. And, um, and I was committed that when I was there, uh, I would live that example that I had preached to so many patients. And I really think it's not just the physical strength that I think it helped me maintain during over two months in the hospital and over six months in in Baltimore, I would walk five or six miles a day uh, in the hospital. 
I wouldn't allow myself to lie in the hospital bed between 8 a.m. and 8 p.m. I didn't take a nap. Uh, I would be up in the, the chair even if I had high fevers and, and not feeling well because it was that point that I was going to push on. I wasn't going to miss exercising. I wasn't going to be lying in bed. Um, and I wasn't going to allow that to, to give in. And I think physically it probably helped a little, I think psychologically it probably helped me a lot that I was that committed that I think the physical strength as well as the, that, that's that stubbornness to, uh, push through, um, out the day. I think the third piece is you can't say enough about the importance of family support and caregiver support. Um, and I think is a, in healthcare and even in my own clinical practice, I probably didn't do a good enough job in the past of caring for the caregiver hmm. and realizing that in many ways, in healthcare, right, that we keep saying, right, the patients are a customer. In many ways, the patients and the family are the customer because the family's going through it as much or more so than the patient. Amy worked uh, throughout the six months. Uh, she traveled back and forth uh, and would work virtually from my hospital room uh, or the house we were staying at in Baltimore when I was out of the hospital. Uh, and would spend three days a week back in Durham uh, with her residents. Uh, and so she was program director at that point. She yep. was program director, and uh, you know it was really it was a great balance for us. Uh, we were fortunate um, to have again my parents and a broader social network that helped step up uh, as caregivers. It was great for our relationship and us to be able to realize, right, I'm still a mom taking care of two teenage boys and I still have a, a residency program and a group of residents that I absolutely love. Um, and she was an amazing caregiver uh, for me for six months through a lot of really difficult times. But I don't think as a physician, I appreciated prior to this journey of how hard this is on caregivers, yet how crucial they are to the outcomes, uh, physically, emotionally, for patients to get through it. So I can't thank her enough for right what she went through, not just in those six months, but I had good four or six months even after that when I got home where I may have been back at work, but I was far from being back to where I needed to be. Um, and that level of support is absolutely essential. But it makes you reflect as a physician now, right? How do we ensure that patients really have that level of support? And how do we as a healthcare delivery system support caregivers as much as we support patients if you think they're as critical uh, to the outcomes that we all want to achieve? And, and I think we need to focus on how we support the caregivers as much as the patients. And, and I think we've seen that in, in COVID just due to the impact on visitor restrictions and others about how important caregivers are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was just going to say that, that it sort of brings to the mind, you know, a lot of uh, situations I've been in where there's no one in the room with them. There's, you know, it's just so hard. Um, so speaking of COVID, this experience that you had, you know, as life altering as it was, how has that affected your experience during COVID? I mean, I think it's been a time that's been hard on everyone, everywhere. But how's your perspective, do you think, different having gone through AML and the treatment? And It, it, it would be impossible not to change uh, anyone, right? And there's so many ways that it changed me. 
I mentioned earlier um, the importance of research from a perspective of a patient, not just the perspective of a physician or a health system. As a clinician scientist, and right, I used to believe that patients were selfless when they enrolled in research and that they were doing that to benefit others. And I, and I was really, I mean, thankful and appreciative when I was a patient, enrolling in a phase one trial was the most selfish thing I could have ever done. It was because I wanted to do everything I could to see my kids grow up. And I wanted to believe that I could do everything possible to beat it. It's come up in COVID, as we've talked around, especially when right, we don't have a lot of effective treatments and we've learned a lot over the last year. Um, but we look at the mortality of patients that show up in the ICU and others. Um, as a leader and as a pulmonary critical care physician, right? It's the most patient-centered thing we can do to ensure that we were leading in innovation and research to improve outcomes. And it's not just for the future, it's for that individual, that everyone deserves the right to feel like I have done everything I can to, to survive. Hmm. If that's my goal, and that's where my wishes are, that right, I, I remember the code status discussion that I had in the hospital. And I said, I'm an ICU physician, do whatever you need to do. So I see my kids grow up. Hmm. But I think we need to think differently about research and say that I as a patient needed that feeling that I was that tried everything. I think that that's what a patient deserves. So when a patient comes in that really has that desire to, to fight and explore every option, we should ensure that access to research and innovation is patient-centered, regardless of what the outcomes, because they need to feel that they have done everything they can and everything in their their power. The other thing um, that's been important, um, and I, I'm now the, the CEO of the Charleston Division, so uh, at MUSC, we're almost 900 beds and about 12,000 employees. Um, we've talked a lot about caregivers over the last few months we have not been as strict in some of our visitor restrictions as others. I think we've learned that we can provide safe care with the right protective equipment and we can have the right uh, caregivers and family members present with the best practices that we know that can keep people safe. And that the initial really strict limits on not allowing caregivers creates different risks and probably greater risks to patient safety and, and outcomes. And that if our goal is to truly be focused on patient and family, we need to balance those risks and to realize they need that level of support uh, and access and that we're in the customer service business. Uh, right, and we have the privilege of caring for patients and families and that to realize that to do that, we need to be able to meet all of their, their needs. Um, but that's been some difficult conversations sometimes across uh, an organization, right? Because of the, of the worry about our own safety uh, as healthcare workers uh, in the setting of the, the challenges that we've had. The third thing that I would highlight and I talk a lot to our teams is the importance of everyone as part of the care team. It's not just your physicians and nurses. It's everyone that's there. I figure I am probably more comfortable in the hospital as a, an ICU physician 
than many, but spending over two months in the hospital, uh, it's a lonely place. <laughs> Nights in the hospital, and I never let Amy stay. I made her go home every single night. Um, we knew it was going to be a long journey. But you're hungry for connection, right? That, that interpersonal human interaction. I still remember people, the team that would deliver the newspaper that would bring my trays when all I could eat was a milkshake for dinner every night and that Alicia would come clean my room five out of seven days and was absolutely meticulous uh, when I had no white blood cells. But I'll never forget um, how much you desire that connection when you're in the hospital for that long and how important every member of the care team is. And in many ways, right, you see all the other members of the care team a lot more than you see your physicians during over the two months I, I spent in the hospital. Hmm. So what would you say if you were to list a couple of the greatest or biggest or what have you life lessons that you'd want to convey to listeners of this podcast about what you went through and are still going through in some ways, right? What would those, what would those be, David? I would focus, uh, and I know it sounds a little cliche when people say, you know, seize the day, but we, none of us know what tomorrow will bring, right? COVID has shown that more than ever, that we cannot predict the future. And that time that we have, not just, uh, you know, with family, making those memories and, and moments, but making the impact. I came back to first, I came back to work August 1st of 2017, 55 days after a bone marrow transplant, and less than six months after I'd been diagnosed with IML. And people said, why did you come back? Why were you in such a rush? And I said, I have the privilege to make an impact. I have that opportunity. And I think that passion and that motivation drives me every day because we never know what tomorrow's gonna bring. So let's not let today go away. And that's not just doing it's not just going to the beach, right? That's the, the thing where we go into work every day uh, to have the privilege that we do to care for so many in our community. And I think in healthcare, we really need to realize, right? We have a privilege that so few other people do. Any other lessons? No, I, again, I'll go back and and end and, and say that I have a, the importance of family, the importance of Amy and the kids in that journey was so critical. Um, and I think I realized it in the moment, uh, but to this day, I think about that every day. And it, it's the hardest to put words uh, around it, right? It's the hardest to describe. And when I think around, right, why am I so fortunate? Why was I not only able to beat AML and survive, but I feel better than I ever have. Uh, I'm in better shape than I was before any of this started. Um, and my energy and passion for life have never been greater. So I reflect on it and I, I truly say this, that in some ways, is it a gift? I, at a minimum, right, should be more appreciative and, and I'm hopefully better as a leader and as a father and as a husband. But I think the whole family has grown. I, I think my kids 
while going through extreme stress are going to be better at the end of this because they've come through adversity and they've learned how to handle it. So I do, I truly look at it to say, right, we've been given a gift. I'm perfectly healthy, four years out, not taking any medicines, running almost every day, but we're better as people in terms of our ability to be appreciative for what we have and grateful that we can continue to, to have that impact on, on others. And we started this by talking about, you know, Amy and Raleigh and I'm in Charleston and the kids are in Boston. Um, but we're all doing what we love hmm. and, and spending the time together on weekends in different cities, but all chasing our dreams uh, and doing that as a family up and down the East Coast is a pretty amazing place to be right now after thinking about where I was four years ago. Well, David, I'm going to let you go visit your friends and see Amy. Um, I cannot thank you enough for spending this hour with me and uh, talking about your experience and what you learned. No, I appreciate the, uh, the chance to talk. Hopefully it wasn't too casual. I, uh, Not at all. No. Uh, do you and Amy have any mutually favorite song? So the, uh, the song we danced to at our wedding, um, which is, uh, you, I don't know if you'll remember or not, but Mark Cohen sang True Companion. Uh-huh. Uh, and I think he was, I wouldn't call him a one-hit wonder because he only had <laughs> one good album, but he did have a good album. Uh, and he actually grew up pretty close to me in Cleveland. He, he grew up in Beachwood, Ohio. Okay. Um, but uh, if you want to pick a song, I would say Mark Cohen's True Companion, a fellow Cleveland native, uh, was the song that we danced to at our wedding. Excellent. It, sort of, it sort of fits this story pretty well. It does. It does. Baby, I've been searching like everybody else. Can't say nothing different about myself. Sometimes I'm an angel and sometimes I'm cruel And when it comes to love I'm just another fool Yes, I'll climb a mountain I'm gonna swim the sea There ain't no act of God, girl Thanks for listening to this podcast, everyone And just to tag on to the story of Jake Zoss and donating his bone marrow to help save his dad he went on to raise two hundred and eight thousand dollars for the leukemia and lymphoma society the music on this podcast was at the beginning Shenandoah played by Keith Jarrett and finally True Companion of course played by Mark Cohen Hopefully the song that Amy and David will be listening to at their 60th wedding anniversary. Girl in white made my decision that it's you alright. When I take your hand, I watch my heart set sail. I take my trembling fingers and I lift up your veil. Then I'll take you home And with wild abandon Make love to you just like a true companion You are my true companion I got a true companion Oh, true companion When the years have done irreparable harm I can see us walking slowly arm in arm Just like that couple on the corner do Cause girl, I will always be in love with you When I 
look in your eyes I still see that spot Until the shadows fall Until the room grows dark Then when I leave this earth I'll be with the angels standing I'll be out there waiting for my true companion Just for my true companion True companion